content will have to stump up £95 for a ticket. BBC Radio 4 News. Now, the broadcaster and writer John Ronson continues his six-part series. This week, he looks at moments when we can't stop ourselves from reacting in John Ronson on uncontrollable responses. The programme contains some strong language. Not long ago, the writer Robert Popper was in Israel. I went to a wedding, and at the end of the wedding, it was outdoors, there was a swimming pool. I was there with, you know, lots of my best friends. We were really drunk, and we jumped into the swimming pool in our suits. And then the bride jumped in as well, in her, like, dress, which was quite mad. So we were all in the swimming pool, drunk, mucking around, laughing. And then we got out of the swimming pool, and then some of my friends took off their pants, i.e. their underpants, and wrung them out, and put their clothes on without their pants. And so you went to a nightclub? So we went to a beach bar club, and while we were there, we were drinking, and it was about three in the morning. And my friend Steve, and my other friend Harvey, they were mucking around, and basically what they were doing were putting their pants over each other's heads. And that was a joke. When they were least expecting, they were slamming their pants down over each other's heads and pulling their heads down with their pants, their wet pants. Now there's many tales in many cities to tell. After the beach bar closed, the overexcited friends piled into an Israeli taxi. I'm next to the driver, and behind the driver is Harvey, and behind me is my friend Steve. So we start driving, we're on the motorway. I'm sort of chatting to the driver, he's not the most friendly man, he's sort of late 50s, quite a big guy. And then suddenly while we're driving, I'm just chatting away to the driver. Harvey leans forward in the back with his black wet pants and jams them over the head of the driver and pulls them really hard and holds onto them, pulling his head down. He's been hooded. <laughs> Harvey's wet pants, and the driver starts screaming, going mental. What are you doing? Oh my God! And you know, this is Israel where people, people get, get killed yeah, and kidnapped. So, did he think for a minute, the driver, that you're a Palestinian? Terror? I don't know what he thought, but I mean, suddenly we're like these, you know, murderers or something, and he loses control of the car totally. And I have to take the wheel, and we're on, on the motorway, and Harvey was holding onto his pants, and I was turning around to Harvey, and I was saying, let go and Harvey was really drunk and tired and all confused and he was just looking what? I said let go let go it's the driver and then a guy pulls the pants off and he takes the car and he swerves and pulls over on the road and he goes I'm going to kill you I'm going to kill you and he was like pushing Harvey to the floor and kicking him and I actually found myself saying the words I said to him give those pants to me now give, give those pants to me they're nothing but trouble <laughs> This is a programme about the moments in our lives when we suddenly behave uncontrollably. Stupidity or rage or embarrassment or courage bubbles up from somewhere within us and takes over. We are no longer ourselves. How does this happen? One morning two years ago, Rachel North, who works in advertising, got on the Piccadilly line tube at Finsbury Park. It was the most rammed carriage I have ever been on in my entire life of using that line. And more and more people were pushing on and on, and I was sitting there thinking, this is ridiculous. And the trains trundled off, and we'd been going for about 45 seconds, and then there was this explosion. I was about seven or eight feet away from it, so I felt this huge power smashing me to the floor, and everything went dark. 
and you could hear the brakes screaming and it was kind of racketing around from it was about being on an out of control fairground ride but in the dark and it was very hot and you couldn't breathe at all the air was just completely thick with smoke and I was suddenly wet completely wet and I was on the floor and there were people lying on top of me and then the screaming started Three years earlier, Rachel had been violently attacked by a stranger in her home. In July 2005, Rachel wrote an article about the attack in Marie Claire magazine. That's what she was doing the moment the bomb exploded. She was standing on a packed tube train, reading the Marie Claire article about her violent attack. As she lay on the ground, she thought, not again. There was glass falling everywhere and... You couldn't breathe anything. I mean, you were gasping and gasping for air. I mean, it was just chaos. Nobody knew what was happening. It was screaming, screaming, screaming. Everybody was on the floor. And I, I remember thinking, am I alive? Yes. Am I blind? Possibly. No, I can vaguely, slightly see because the emergency lights started to come on in the carriage walls. And I thought, if we don't all stand up, there's going to be absolute chaos because there's so many people in here. We, people are going to start trampling on each other's heads and we're going to have injuries. So you weren't screaming? I wasn't screaming. No, I was shouting, get up! I was going, stand up, stand up, keep calm. If you're injured, we shout out. And there were people next to me screaming. And I was, and this girl, I had her hand in my hand and I was going, are you all right? She was like, yes. And I said, get up then, come on, we've got to get up. And between us, with the front part of the carriage managed to get to its feet and get calm. I was kind of in a very tense, adrenalised state. I don't know, it was, I mean, everybody reacts in different ways. You don't plan how you react when the carriage explodes. We decided to evacuate the train and I was one of the last people to get off and as I went to leave I did a quick sweep round behind me and I did see some of what had happened, yes, and that has stayed with me because I still worry whether I should have stayed and tried to help people even though it was really dark and all I could see was that there was some bent metal, there was people on the floor, there was... I, 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 did, I won't say what I saw but it was pretty horrific. How, how many people died in your 26 carriage? people died in my carriage. It should have been more, but because the carriage was so packed that what happened was the people who were very close to the, the bomb got the full blast, and then the people who were about three or four yards away from the bomb got very bad lower limb injuries. Rachel, being about eight people away from the bomber, Mohammed Siddiqui Khan, wasn't too badly injured. When she got home a few hours later, she went online and began writing about it. She wrote and wrote, day after day, a flood of blog postings. Her account of the July 7th bombings became one of the most read and most beautifully written on the internet. You can install a thing that tells you where your visitors are coming from, called Sight Meter. So I, I noticed a few weeks after installing that, I seemed to be getting an awful lot of hits from a particular website. So I went and looked at the website and I was interested to discover that somebody on that website had taken my original account of the bombs and was claiming that it was actually a description of a power surge. Which I found very strange because it was obviously a power surge doesn't doesn't rip people's limbs off and kill people. Yeah this thing about what's it called web stats where you know what, site meter and site yeah meter, yeah because that gave me a shock because I the other day decided to look myself up to see what people were saying about me. So I found a few blogs 
and people were talking about me. And then a couple of weeks later, just about a month ago, a couple of weeks later, I noticed all these people were saying, John Ronson's been on my site. I thought, how do they know? <laughs> <laughs> and isn't he self-absorbed? To which I would like to say to them, well, you're the one who's obsessively looking up who's been on your website. <laughs> we're the same. Anyway, that's a digression. <laughs> So you installed this thing called Stats. I, I, I installed a thing that monitors where your traffic is coming from. So where your visitors are where coming your from. Where your visitors are coming from. So I went over to this bloke's website and there's this long discussion about how the government were behind the 7th of July bombings and they had this really strange and convoluted theory that a power surge had happened on the London Underground, which... Well, that was how it was originally well, reported. Well, in initially, yes. But this, this guy was saying that there'd been, uh, you know, what was affected to corporate manslaughter... The government had sought to cover it up by blaming it on suicide bombers and to add weight to this theory, he presupposed that the bus on Tavistock Square in which 13 people died was actually a fake bus filled with actors and stuntmen using clever pyrotechnics as part of a terror exercise drill that was being conducted by some sinister organisation, which I thought was just obscene given that by that stage I'd met people who had lost loved ones on that bus. To call the people on the bus who died actors and stuntmen was, I thought, quite abhorrent. And the people who were spreading these theories, had they brought you into it at this point? Well, they were just quoting me as if I had, you confirmed know, it. confirmed it. It was at this point that Rachel felt uncontrollably compelled to do something unwise. She decided to jump into the fray, jump into the lives of the internet conspiracy theorists. She decided to get involved and try and convince them that their theories weren't true. I found this whole discussion on a discussion board about me, pages of it. They were discussing who I was and what I believed. So I thought, well, OK, if you're going to discuss who I am and what I believe, I will join in and tell you who I am and what I believe. He was inviting comments on his website, and I, so I kind of dived in and I read all this stuff and then I came up for air and then I left a very angry comment going, how dare you misquote me in this way? Power surges do not tear people's legs off. And then he responded by saying, you didn't even know the bomb was in your carriage, you know, you keep changing your story, and basically had a go at me. They were saying that I'd hacked their website, they were saying that they didn't believe I was a, a woman, they didn't believe I was a bomb survivor. Some of them said, oh, she is, but it's something funny about her. Rachel believed what most people believe, that the July 7th attacks were the work of Mohammed Siddiqui Khan and his accomplices, and not a conspiracy involving a thousand actors in the British government. She told the conspiracy theorists that they were fantasists, and that it wasn't nice to find yourself a character in another person's paranoid fantasy, especially when you've just been blown up on the tube. They decided I was a Zionist shill. They decided I was a team of MI5 disinformation agents who were employed by the government to spread lies and propaganda about terrorism and that I was managing to somehow control all the survivors and represent this fake story to them, that I was somehow controlling the media. I mean, they did credit me with extraordinary powers and they actually thought that MI5 employed people to refute the conspiracy theories on a full-time, 24-hour basis. I have something in common with Rachel. I too have incurred the wrath of the July 7th conspiracy theorists by speaking out against their irrational thoughts. 
They set up a discussion called John Ronson, Shill or Stupid. A shill is someone who's paid by the conspirators to spread lies. Like Rachel, I found myself uncontrollably, unwisely, compelled to jump into their online debate and defend myself. I think if you find a whole group of strange people discussing who you are and what you believe, it's quite hard not to respond. You said to me, what would you do? What would people do if they mm. found that there was a whole bunch of people discussing them pejoratively on the internet? And you know what most people would do? Mm. They'd do nothing. If you're a movie star, if you're Tom Cruise or Britney Spears, you tend to do nothing because if you jump in, it just spirals yeah. out of control. But you... But I'm not a movie star or a celebrity. I'm just an ordinary person who wrote about my experiences on a website like millions of other ordinary people. I don't think Rachel anticipated how vicious it would soon become. How did the internet get so vicious? I think I have the answer. The internet gives us the illusion that we're wonderfully gregarious people. When we type away on discussion boards and post comments on our blogs, it feels like we're sitting outside a pub in the evening sunshine with our attractive, cool friends. But we aren't. That's something we used to do before we got addicted to the internet. What we do instead is perform some empty, unsatisfying facsimile of that. We sit alone in our rooms, becoming more and more isolated from society. And inevitably, this turns us into mad, yelling, wild-eyed loons. I think the reason why so many people became convinced that Rachel didn't exist and was instead a team of MI5 agents is because they were spending too much time alone in their rooms. Soon, though, Rachel was to come face to face with them. And so would I. Find out what happens later in the programme. Rachel was being attacked because it's easier to insult someone impersonally over the internet. Here's a funnier story about how hard it is to insult someone face to face. The comedian Emma Kennedy was driving through America with a friend when their car broke down in the middle of nowhere. In the distance I could see what looked like a giant waffle in the sky and I thought I am going probably mad now I'm, I'm actually seeing things well either that or you're one of America's 250 million waffle houses <laughs> yes that's exactly <laughs> what it was it was literally a giant waffle in the sky it was just that the haze had sort of obliterated the building that was immediately below it and I got into this waffle house and just went straight and said please just give me some water and I was like <coughs> you know, I had no moisture in my mouth whatsoever. And the woman behind the counter sort of handed me this huge pint of water and I glugged it sort of straight down. And then we got chatting. Emma told the waitress that they were lost and their car had broken down. And she stood up and just shouted into the Waffle House and just said, Can anyone give these girls a lift? And this man sort of over in the corner put his hands up and just went, Yeah, I will. He had sort of a, a black quiff, not unlike Alvin Stardust, and he was wearing this black shirt. He was in a booth, and he got out of the booth, and instead of going up, he went down, because he was... Now, I don't know whether it's a... I don't think he was a dwarf, 
he looked like a normal man but just a tiny one okay so he went down he, he went down let you carry on and, and, and he <laughs> also had one club foot right. it was bizarre anyway but now it was it was getting like something in a david lynch film in fact he looked very like the the, the chap do you remember in twin peaks the little fellow who used to come out used to walk backwards yes used to walk backwards but i, I believe that many dwarfs don't like the sort of analogy that, you know because he's dwarf he's like no i in know a david lynch film no i know many dwarfs <laughs> don't don't like the fact that we all think of dwarfs as being nothing more than dream sequences of american you know yes part i of can a dream see i can see that i can see that film. i think the point that i'm making is i wasn't expecting when he got out of the booth for him to go down yeah. rather than that it was quite surprising because he actually looked very normal sitting yeah. in the booth you're being I'm, really anti-dwarf i'm not being anti-dwarf yeah well maybe it's Dwarfs because of what happened next <laughs> i think that's what it is i think my experience of the dwarf is colored by what then happened because you know obviously i thought great that's incredibly kind thank you let's go <laughs> so we go out into the car park and he's got a ferrari it's got a red Ferrari. Hmm? I'm thinking, wow, this is like the best lift I ever had. And then I get into the car and he locks the doors. What happened to your friend? My friend's in there with me. Right. And off we go. At this point, he then turns to us and says, right, do you want to come back to my place and have sex? This was actually when my PC-ness came into full. Because if he had been a full-bodied man i would have told him where to go straight away but i found myself literally going all around the houses trying to come up with explanations as to why i didn't find him physically attractive and it was ridiculous that i got myself into this situation where i was literally just thinking oh no i am going to have to have sex with him because i don't want him to think that i don't find him physically attractive i can't do that to him that to me is worse than if i don't have to have sex with him and did you have sex with no, him? no i didn't have sex with him because my friend rather brilliantly told him we had periods <laughs> At which point he immediately just let us out of the car. <laughs> it turned out he was an orthodox the, Jew. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation where like the dwarfs wanted to have sex with me? What? Where dwarfs yes, wanted we, to have sex sorry, with me? Sorry, I thought you said yes, dwarfs have wanted to have sex with me. <laughs> no. You haven't. And you found your way back? Yes. It was sort of like out of the frying pan into the fire because we got out of the car with the dwarf and were picked up by a family of Seventh-day Adventists who then tried to turn us to Jesus for the next three days. At yeah. least they didn't want to have sex with me. Emma Kennedy. One of the leaders of the July 7th was an inside job movement is David Shaler. He's the former MI5 officer who was imprisoned in 2002 for passing classified information to the Mail on Sunday. David Shaler is a hero to people who believe in an open society, but he also has some thoughts about who was responsible for July 7th. Here's Rachel North. They invited me to one of their meetings where David Shaler was speaking. So I went along with another 7-7 survivor mostly middle-aged white people, a couple of younger people, almost entirely men, in this pub. David Shaler came in, starts holding forth about Lockerbie, 9-11. They started talking about the bus, the actors, the stuntmen, from what I remember, the thousand-person terror exercise. Then everybody started shouting, and so I raised my voice to be heard over them shouting, they shouted, I shouted. They make it sound like I got up from the floor, marched 
onto the stage and started declaiming away. That's not what happened. Mm. The whole room erupted in shouting. So Rachel North is blown up on July the 7th and writes about it. And then she looks herself up on the internet to discover that she's being described by people who weren't there as someone who didn't exist and was, in fact, a team of MI5 agents. That has to be annoying to someone who was on that I have every sympathy with Rachel North in that position. I really, really do, because, of course, I've been subject to the same kind of stuff on the internet. This is David Shaler. When we talk about Rachel North being a, a sort of composite sort of MI5 person, I mean, honestly, I think you should present the evidence to people of why people are saying that. OK, why, just why, why do you think people are saying that? Well, they're saying it, they're saying because Rachel North won't have a dispassionate briefing about 7-7 in which somebody talks her through the evidence. Anybody who's not prepared to engage with evidence, their opinion is not worth anything. So do you think there's a chance that Rachel North is a composite of MI5 agents? Well, I don't know. So I, haven't seen the, I haven't seen the full evidence on that. All I know... But do you think it's a possibility? Well, anything's a possibility, isn't it? Of course anything's a possibility, but please, I mean, if you, you're not asking about just, something, show me the evidence. But it's just because she won't engage and kind of... I'm not saying anything about Rachel. What I'm saying, John, is I'm saying if, if people won't take the evidence, how can we actually trust those people to have any idea what's going on? I think I can tell you why Rachel doesn't want to sit down and have a great big meeting with all the people who think that 7-7 well, was an inside job oh, no, no. and that she's a composite, she doesn't really exist. I can tell you why I don't think she wants to sit down with those people. Okay. I think it's because it can be kind of intimidating, but worse, it can kind of suck the very soul out of your body. And, you know, when you've been through, you know, getting blown up, you just think, oh, my God, do I really want to sit down with these crazy fantasists and, well, again, you know, have, have, have the soul... Crazy fantasists. Come on, sucked. John. You said the official story of 9-11 stands. You are the craziest fantasist there is, John. I promise you. But you, you alluded to something a few minutes ago. You said that, you know, we don't know that Rachel North isn't a composite figure. But... Oh, well, I'd, say I'd like to see the evidence, John, I really would. But I don't think we should dismiss these things, the idea that the intelligence services would create a mm. composite figure. I don't think we should dismiss that idea because that's exactly the kind of thing they would do. But you've met her. I I've met her. But what I'm trying to say is that Rachel North can exist as a figure, but it doesn't mean to say there's not five people behind her posting in her name on the internet to get stuff out there. Once you've got a name, anybody can be posting their stuff on the internet, can't they? Mm. Well, I think you seem to think that the only reason why Rachel might be a group of men working for MI5 is because she doesn't want to sit down and engage with the conspiracy theorists. No, I'm not. It's to do with her prestigious posting on the internet. And again, I think you should look at the evidence there about how many posts she was doing at one point. She was posting a lot. Because I think other people have looked at this in the movement and come to the opposite conclusion, that there were far too many posts to come from one person. You know what bloggers are like. It's right and right and right. Someday. I don't understand why, because they're not getting paid. Do you regret jumping in and getting involved with them? I think morally it was the right thing to do. I think from a personal point of view, I could do without the hate mail, I could do, I've had death threats. I could do without my, you know, I feel upset that my family were contacted. Well, I suppose if you've survived such a traumatic act, you're gonna be more inclined to jump in, in in anger. I think I was, I mean, I was angry. A part of dealing with the aftershock of trauma is you, you do become angry about things. You're on a short fuse, you're not sleeping very well. When you do sleep, you're haunted by screaming and, and explosions. When you were awake, you quite often feel depressed or despairing. You wonder why you lived and other people died. You feel guilty that you lived and other people died. 
so you're constantly in a state of exhaustion and, and, and sadness and then, and then in that state when you find people claiming you're a liar and it never happened I think you probably do take it to heart more When somebody who was actually there at the moment of the explosion rather than somebody who sits at home on the internet and theorises comes and confronts the theorists. Why do the conspiracy theorists get so angry and so personal? Um, well, I think, again, you're trying to make this to be the case, but I have to say, when Rachel North did come to one of our meetings, I thought her behaviour showed signs of mental illness. Because... Did Rachel was mentally ill? Uh, no, I'm saying that the behaviour I saw over then, I don't know particularly well, showed signs of mental illness. What did she do that was mentally ill? Um, it was the, the degree with which she attacked me for having to say this thing about precisely the same stations. It was the fact that once she said it, she stood up, came running towards me and started shouting at me. There was a madness about this. And I would invite you to actually interview anybody else who was there because they will say the same thing. But that's because Rachel thinks it's nonsense. Uh, but how does she know until she's seen the evidence? And I see, I well, probably, I'm, I'm getting the same sort of vibe of you here, John. That yeah, you think it's nonsense, you haven't seen the evidence, you see. But you, this is the problem we're in, because but are you talking a about viewpoint the arrived at without evidence is prejudice. Are you and to say that Muslims carried out 9-11, those three guys from Leeds and one from Aylesbury, without seven, evidence... 7-7, seven, you mean. Sorry, 7-7, seven, seven, sorry, 7-7, seven, seven, the, the four guys... They're supposed to have carried out 7-7, seven, seven. the evidence is simply not there to say it. What to about, say what they about, did it, to say they did it... What about the video? Was that set up? racist, the... John. It's racist. You're being racist against Muslims if you think those three guys carried out that attack on the evidence there. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> Do you... <laughs> it's what I uncontrollably feel as if I should say to you, though, well, for then, so many reasons, David. include the recording of that in the actual interview, please, because... Or, or can I have a recording of that to play to people now? Because I, think I don't we... think John here is actually being an objective interview at all. This is very, very personal, John. I mean, obviously, you'd appreciate that I'm coming to talk to you today because there's mm -hmm. been enormous interest in the 9-11 Truth Movement. I'll be absolutely honest with you that certain people have said to me before I came here, you should be very careful, this man. He may be a shill and so on. I said, I don't think that. I want to go and talk to the man and find out what he's all about. And now that you've met me, do you think they're right and, that, and I am a shell? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't think you're a shell at all, mate. So will you tell them that I'm not a shell? Oh, of course I will. If I, that's a conclusion. I'm, I'm not an expert in the case, but what I've read about you and what I understand of this interview here, John, I, I honestly can say that if you're my honest opinion from my heart, I don't think you're a shell. Will you tell them? Because they're really making my life a misery. Well, I don't know but let's, let's just talk about this thing but, for but, a second. But, so we're talking about the shill thing. Yeah. This is critical. I, I don't think you are a shill, but if you won't look at the evidence, that does leave some little suspicions in my mind. I've got to admit, the whole thing began because I inadvertently typed my name into Google and accidentally pressed search, and I found a website, or I found a discussion, that was called John Ronson, Shill or Stupid. <laughs> well, as I said, I don't think you're a shill, but I think we're entitled to say anybody... Think I'm stupid. No, 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 but you don't, if you don't want to see the evidence about 9-11, I've got to say that's not a sign of intellect. By the way, a shill means a kind of paid stooge, doesn't yeah, absolutely, it? absolutely, yeah, yeah. OK. When you go back and tell them, will you tell them that I'm not a shill, but also that I'm not stupid? OK, well, I'll say that. Because, I, I, you know, because it's a bit insulting. I, well, John, I get the same thing myself, so I'm entirely sympathetic to you. But I have to say with the proviso again that if you don't take the briefing, I will have to say that's a sign of... Shieldum. No, 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 not, 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 not... Stupidity. No, ignorance. Ignorance, OK. Well, he's and not a show, he's not stupid, but he's ignorant. I can live you, with that. That I can live with. When they hear this, they're still not going to believe that you exist, some of them, because, especially because I'm interviewing you, because mm. they see me as part of the cabal. I've given up trying to change their minds now. I know I exist. All the people on the train who've met me know I exist. I got off the train covered in blood and smoke and soot with glass in my hair and metal sticking out of my wrist bone. 
I went and was gave a statement to the police. I was photographed. I was stitched up in the hospital. I can produce dozens of witnesses that I was there, that I am who I am. And if some people choose not to believe that, then, then I pity them, really. John Ronson on Uncontrollable Responses was written and presented by John Ronson. The producer was Laura Parfit and it was a unique production for BBC Radio 4. Next week, John's subject will be crushed egos, so put a brave face on it next Tuesday night at 11. Tomorrow night, we've a comedy double bill in this half hour. Faye's adventures continue in our comedy Fabulous at 11. And then the country music sensation Tina C continues her State of the Union tour at 11.15. That's all tomorrow night. As for tonight, we've a star-studded cast for Today in Parliament in just a moment. Stephen Polyakov talks about his play, Breaking the Silence. Breaking the Silence is a story of a white Russian family, um, Jewish upper-middle-class family, who find themselves evicted from their house and living on a train, which did happen to my grandfather. And it's a story of great historical events sweeping around this train carriage. So from that real story that happened to my family, I have written a play which I hope is a bit broader. It's not just a family anecdote, but something that, that has wider resonance. Breaking the Silence is the second of our stage plays on Saturday afternoon at half past two. To Westminster now on BBC Radio 4, where Tom Cruise and Paris Hilton featured Today in Parliament. Order! Order! Good evening, this is Susan Hume at Westminster, where the government rejects a move to let courts hear phone-tap evidence and ridicules an attack by Liberty on new ASBOs for suspected gangsters. It is littered with uh, some unfounded assertions and important inaccuracies, owing more probably to the Paris Hilton School of Intellectual Rigour rather than the usual standards of...